life was good to the Perrys of Pequot Landing. For 300 years, they lived in this place. The generations were rich with love. And the most beloved of all were the twins, Niles and Holland. That summer, they shared a secret life in the apple cellar, in the nursery. On this special episode of Movie Geeks United, we have as our special guest Adam Zanzi. Adam Zanzi is a film historian, I should say. Uh, he's done several video essays on many notable films, uh, among them Schindler's List, and there are many others that I'm, are not coming to me at the top of my head right now, but uh, I know the Schindler's List is a very high-profile one. Uh, but he has recently completed the research for a video essay that he's going to be putting together very soon for a very neglected 1972 horror film that I'm a huge fan of, and and he is as well, The Other, Robert Mulligan's 1972 chiller, which made a really strong impression on me at the age of seven. And um, so I'll go ahead and quickly just say... When I saw this film, it was somewhere in the fall of 1977. It had already previously aired on CBS uh, in 1975 in its first network television uh, broadcast, and it was rebroadcast in 77. That's when I caught it. Um, a lot of times I would just catch things that were playing. I, I had this um, routine where I would spend the night at my grandparents' house, and this is the late 70s, and the television was on, and so I just tuned in, and I was hooked. Uh, you know, I was very intrigued, and as the the story went on, I became more intrigued. <laughs> By the time it was over with, uh, uh, even at the age of seven, I was kind of wondering what the hell I had just seen. Uh, <laughs> and my grandmother kind of explained some of the things that were a little bit over my head so that I would understand what was going on. And then coincidentally, the next day, uh, my family and I were doing some shopping, and we were in a bookstore, and I happened upon the paperback of the other so i realized at that point it, w it was a book that had been made into a film and so then i became intrigued and i didn't get to see this film again until 1987 when it appeared on a local television station late at night uh, it was out of circulation not on vhs for many many years until 1989 it finally became widely available on vhs tape and it has been issued on DVD in 2006 and Blu-ray in 2013. So luckily, it's it was available. I think it may be out of print now, the American version anyway. But anyway, yeah, yeah. so I'm going to uh, hush and let you tell what you know about it because you know more about the production of this film. I just wanted to uh, to give our listeners a little background on my love affair, where my love affair of this film uh, began. And uh, so let's uh, let's hear. To start with, uh, how you first encountered the film? Well, I was growing up in the 1990s as a child, major movie buff. Um, loved to go to a, a video store at a grocery store, or a video store that was in a grocery store in Wildwood, Missouri, where I grew up. Wildwood is in St. Louis County. And I used to go into this video store, and, I, you know, being a little kid, you kind of want to see what the, the films for adults look like. And so I'd see in the horror section this CBS Fox VHS tape you referred to with the screaming boy and under him what looked like an illustrated ghost boy and and I saw it was rated PG. My parents would never let me rent it. They said that's in the horror section. You can't rent horror movies. It's not that they, they didn't allow me to watch like movies that were scary, but like if I guess they figured if it's classified horror, it's not for kids. 
So <laughs> every time I would get disappointed, of course, in retrospect, I'm glad they didn't let him rent. I was like eight, <laughs> eight, eight or nine years old when I wanted to rent the other. And I didn't see it officially until I was 17 years old. Um, now, when I was a freshman in high school, when I was 15, before I entered high school, that summer I watched To Kill a Mockingbird for the first time, which, you know, it's, it's one of those life-changing movies that makes you love classic films. And, and I read the book To Kill a Mockingbird, and I remember, in coincidentally, in the ninth grade trailer where we took, had literature class, I saw on the book in the teacher's classroom the other by Thomas Tryon, and... Our teacher didn't want us to read books that were based on that turn into movies because that complicates the book reports. And I said, you know, Mr. Dunsker, I think that's a movie too. The other, he's like, really? He never heard of it. And, and but you know, flash forward a few years, I, I'm getting interested in watching '70s films. I watched Same Time Next Year because that's one of my mother's favorite movies. It's a total chick flick. And so I, <laughs> so yeah, by the time I was a senior in high school, I had seen two films directed by this man named Robert Morgan. Seen to kill Mockingbird, which is classic, requires no real defense. And same time, next year is fine. I, I like it. I have some criticisms of it. But Robert Mulligan, you may, I don't know if you agree with me on this, Adam, but for a long time, he was never considered what you'd call one of the important, like, directors that people need to study. Like, obviously, he made, yeah, he made some classics, but he, Robert Morgan was on the auteur. He's not, like, you don't teach him in class, like, you teach Hitchcock or Bergman or whatever. And so, and I always, People like to call him a journeyman. I don't think that's quite true. I think he started out as a journeyman in the 50s and even the 60s, really, to kill Mockingbird because that was a collaborative effort. But So he was not a name that I thought I had to seriously explore his filmography. But one night in October 2008, I am watching scary movies, renting them from Blockbuster Online. And I, I don't remember what made me think of the other, but I thought, oh, it's directed by the guy who did Kill Mockingbird. Well, and that's the movie I wanted to rent when I was a little kid. Let's just see. And so I rented it through Blockbuster Online, watched the trailer on the DVD, which tipped me off to how, whoa, this is going to be a really intense film. Something about a baby disappearing on the screen. <laughs> At the end, Loretta Leversee is screaming and knocking over dishes. And I'm like, what is this movie? What is it? And I watched it. And that night, I was like, what? It was great. It was great. And I, and I thought... Like, I would love to meet Robert Mulligan one day and let him know that this and To Kill a Mockingbird were seminal films for me. But then two months later, he died. And I remember being so sad about that. But reading the obituaries, I would find out, you know, Summer 42, that's an important movie. You should see that. And so, you know, as I became an adult, I watched all of Robert Mulligan's films. And I realized he didn't just leave behind two or three classic films. He left behind several films that had his stamp on them. So, as you can probably tell, it was Robert Mulligan that got me obsessed with the other. I didn't read the book by Tom Tryon until a decade later. I think, I, I don't know if you have the same problem as I do, but sometimes for me, if I see the movie first, it's hard for me to read the book because I've already got the filmmaker's vision in my head. Oh, yeah. It's, easy, yeah, it's easier for me to read a book if I go in with an open mind. So it took me a while to finally make myself read Tom's book. And you know more about Tom Tryon than I do, Adam, but his book is very good. It's, you know, it's a lot more tragic, I think, than the movie because Niles is in a mental asylum and stuff. And I, th and I can, you know, and so, but over the years, I, I wrote a review of the film from my blog. When I heard that Chris Udvarnoki died in 2010, I, I wrote a blog piece and paying tribute to him. And somehow Roger Ebert read my two blog pieces. I think Matt Zoller Sites might have referred those pieces to Roger. I don't know for sure, though. I don't want to bother Matt about it. Once Ebert was tweeting my pieces, I thought, man, as I get older, I want to know everything because the DVD's got no special features. The Blu-ray has a nice isolated Jerry Goldsmith score, and we have the late Nick Redman to thank for that. Um, mm -hmm. but it was just there was just nothing out there about the making of the movie, and I would find books in my college library. I went to film school at Webster University, and then I got my master's at David Lynch's film school, and but I'd find old, old, old books from the 70s, interviews with Tom Trine where he's bashing the film and saying it was faultily directed without even mentioning the name of the director. And I thought, hmm. I didn't realize there was such a controversy. I don't know if that's the right word or just maybe disappointment and tension. And, but over the years, you know, you start to get more and more curious. And in 2016, I met the editor, Nicholas Brown. Oh, Nicholas Brown from Coffee and... But I still was like, I don't know how many people are alive 
who worked on it. It wasn't until it wasn't until 2018 when I called up Don Kranz, the assistant director, and he told me that he was the one that found the house in Murphy's, told Robert Morgan to shoot there because they made the Edward G. Robinson film Red House there along his home ago. And mm-hmm. once I got a hold of Don Kranz, I thought, I think there might be a story here. And eventually that led to me talking to Albert Brenner, Marty Udvarnoki. That was a big one. I'd always wanted to talk to Marty. And, and now I think I've spoken to just about every surviving principal cast and crew member that worked on the other. So it's been a decade of research in the making. That's an amazing accomplishment. It really is. And like I said, it's uh, and, and you're really doing a major service to this film because um, uh, there has not been any record, like you said, of, of what's happened. And, and I, I really think it's sad that some of these people have passed who could have filled in the gaps uh, that really knew some, some things. I myself reached out to Robert Mulligan, oh, probably three to four years before his passing, uh, I, I'm quite close friends with uh, Norma Frank, who had the female lead in Fear Strikes Out. She lives near me, uh, so she knew him quite well. Um, and um, they they were she uh, lived in the New York area when he was starting out as a television director, and and then right. ironically, she wound up as the female lead on the uh, Texas John Slaughter television show, which had Tom Tryon as the male lead. So she worked with both of them in op- in uh, different capacities, uh, shall we say? So uh, yeah, I, um, I I just and I you know really had never read the novel of the other until after Tom's passing in 1991, and uh, and then that led to me reading his other novels, and I really started to get a sense that he was a really gifted novelist. He, he Some of his later novels, I think, uh, didn't, especially the collections of short stories, uh, they didn't quite, they weren't quite as uh, good as some of the other ones. But Harvest Home and Lady, the two follow-ups, are, are really quite good as well. And and so uh, I really hate that there's not more of a record from, from them when they were uh, alive. But uh, but I think that's, that's incredible that you were able to... Um, to get to talk to Nicholas Brown and uh, Albert Brenner and and all of those people, and I did not realize that the uh, your piece on uh, Martin Ardvernoki was. I, I remember reading the Roger Ebert mention of it, but I had yeah, no idea there was a connection yeah. to you. So that's interesting. Yeah, Chris, Chris, who played Niles, he died in 2010 of some sort of I think kidney disease and. And yeah, Martin, I but, meant Chris. But, and, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and but and it's been a while for me to get a hold of Marty. But Marty told me I think he was also sort of aware of the Ebert tribute as well. Mm-hmm. I, I always thought that was wonderful. Ebert gave the film a nice review in 1972, and then flash forward to like almost 40 years later, he just says, "All right, Pete, put your on Yeah, sure. Yeah, and I, I do. I make these video essays because I am a filmmaker myself. I'm a writer director and. As you probably know, it's hard to get in the film industry. It's hard to get directing offers. And I've made short films that have gone to festivals and won awards, but I don't mm-hmm. think it's enough. I don't think the industry cares. And I realize you can meet people by meeting them, for, like you can get their attention by meeting them for coffee and asking questions about the films they made. And I right. thought, well, time is now, I, I might as well use that as an excuse to consolidate info about the other and you, you know, you mentioned how Tom – did you say something about how Tom Trine has sort of been forgotten over the years? And he has, later, yes. I think it's because his estate – now, his new literary executor, C. Robert Holloway, is quite a character, and he's told me some good – and it thanks to C. Robert, uh, the other has been reissued by New York Classics. and right. But for, I think for a while, Tom Trine's estate was run by his lover, Clive Clerk, Clive Wilson, and – and uh, his and he uh, committed suicide in 2005. And I think maybe there was also some conflict with Tom Tryon's family members because even though the obituary said stomach cancer, he really was HIV positive, and uh, he didn't want the public to know. Mm-hmm. And I, over the decades, that's always just been kind of said. I mean, you know, I wasn't there. I didn't know him. I, sure. I can't speak with authority, but see, Robert Holloway knew him very well. He actually knew he read the other the manuscript before it was published. So I take C. Roberts Holloway's word for a lot of things, and I'm glad that he's given the book another life. And I figure, well, I can use some of what he's told me and some of what other people's line fans like you, Adam, to try to rejuvenate, give the film himself a retrospective. It would be great to just, I don't know, just get everything back together with it. It's true, and and it's an amazing movie. Over the years, I have screened it for people. 
uh, even uh, I was dating somebody years ago, personal story, who was very jaded, um, kind of snobbish when it came yeah. to film and, and literature. And I ran the film for her, and mm-hmm. she was bowled over. And she yeah. was somebody that you just could not – she always thought she had seen it all, done it all, been there. That's why we're not together, but that's a whole other story. But the but point that's, is that's – girl, That's a girlfriend with good taste. Yeah, ex- exactly, yeah. because when she she could not stop talking about it, and she was a person that you could not you know, break through to. And I thought, well, if this movie can get through to her – you know, and there have been other – I remember uh, a group of friends of mine. I ran uh, it for them right after it came out on VHS tape. And they literally broke up into discussion groups after the film too. They they were you know having these discussions, um, you know, like well, well that that happened and this what was this all about and you know just <laughs> trying to get all the the. Um, but the trick of the film to me is what makes it so wonderful is uh, it's a repeat. Uh, it's a film that really gains in repeat viewings because you watch it for the first time with the. The, for the plot and the plot revelations, but then you go back and rewatch it for the ingeniousness of the plotting and the way the the um, the clues are laid out in in, pro, in broad daylight. You see the clues of what's happening, but because you're unaware, uh, it, it's all there if you know what's once you know what's happening. But when you don't, uh, it's it's just really amazing how he just lays it all out there in front of you, and, and you don't even see it on the, on the first viewing. So it's a real trick. Um, so I just wanted to kind of get into the uh, production of it. Uh, I know the script was, I think, finished in – I think the novel was published in 71, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and then I believe in June of 71, and, and graciously you uh, got me a copy of the original shooting script, which I, I much appreciate. Uh, I, I read it. It, it. There are some very subtle differences, but interesting differences nonetheless. Uh, but I think the original draft was June of 1971, and then in August he did a revision, and that was the yeah. one they went out with. Uh, yeah, and they all say first draft on right. them. So I, I don't know that there were big changes. But I mean, but there are those whole screens that are in that script that were filmed but cut out of the movie. So it is an excellent script. Tom Tryon did a very – I wish mm-hmm. I knew more about the discussions he and Robert Mulgan had about the adaptation. That's been very, very difficult. Um, cause I, let me tell you in October, 2018, at the same time that I called up Don Kranz, I sent a letter to Robert Mulgan's uh, widow, Sandy Mulgan. Mm-hmm. And, and I got back a letter from her, from her place in old Lyme, Connecticut. And the stamp was an Atticus Finch stamp. <laughs> and I said, all right. This Fantastic. Is yeah. And her letter was very brief. She didn't work on the movie, but she had nothing but nice things to say. She said her husband loved the Chris and Marty. He loved Uta Hagen. He loved working with uh, Robert Surtees, oh, yeah. uh, you know, who I, I don't think, oh yeah, he shot Summer 42. So he, and That's she correct, said he was yeah. delight, delighted he could come back and work again. Of course, later in the decade, they worked again on Blood Brothers and same time next year. Mm-hmm. And, and actually I, I was delighted to find, uh, this, so this French filmmaker Lionel Vercore made some sort of documentary about Hogan recently. I haven't seen it because it's not English, but, mm. but Lionel graciously sent me a French interview that Morgan did with Michel Cement. And uh, a French interview with a guy named Gerard Weenie. And in these interviews, Morgan talks about working with Surtees on the cinematography and and talks and just talks about a lot of stuff that's going to be explained later. So it's great to put up together a lot of pieces. There's just a few things I was frustrated not to know more about, especially the Jerry Goldsmith score. I wanted to know more about what Goldsmith's experience was like doing the music, but people won't talk to me. There are other Goldsmith aficionados who have told me interesting, but there was at least one guy whose name I won't mention who's like, oh, I'm sorry, I can't help. I know some things about Jerry told me in confidence, and I'm going to take them like gray. I'm like, all right, man, whatever. Like, and so it's that's terrible. a draft. Yeah, I mean, I guess you can't find out everything when most of the people are gone, but I got pretty close. So I'm I, I'm looking forward to seeing the video finished myself because so much of this has been buried, and I would hate it if it all disappeared forever. Yeah, I would too, and and like I said, I, I, again, uh, reiterate that you're doing a real service because this is uh, this is a, a film that has been unjustly forgotten. I, I I'm curious about um, well, as I was saying, you know, I, I I know they started shooting it around this time of the year. I believe it was in mm-hmm. 1971. It was uh, I yes. believe the production was September to December of 71. Uh, to no to November. Yeah, it's okay, it was gotcha. yeah. I, so the shooting schedule is at UCLA, and okay. before I 
before I acquired the script that I sent to you, I had to go to UCLA and look at the shooting schedule and uh, Lou Frizzell's the late Lou Frizzell's copy of the script. And uh, his script had yeah, his script had some notes on it for his uncle George roles, and so right. I took some pictures of his notes and stuff. Um, but yeah, that was back then. And then recently, when I found out the script was on Script City, I'm like, oh my god, I'm buying that. I am not going back to UCLA ever. Mm-hmm. You know, they have to get that stuff. So it's and Diana Moldauer, she raved to me about how she loved the script and was a little disappointed with the movie. So I sent her the script, and she was quite enthusiastic to have it again. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. So they they chose and now Don Kranz, he chose the Murphy's lo, uh, lo, California location as yeah. you said and yeah uh, and he, and here's how that started I Don Kranz and I were only on the phone for 15 minutes he was in his 90s by then uh-huh. and he, yeah. did, he did not want to meet for coffee and I think one of the first things I asked him was how did you get an associate producer credit I think he also had an associate producer credit on Summer of 42 and, I think, but I think he so, he yeah. tried to deflect from that saying oh it doesn't mean anything those credits don't mean but then I said well what's the first thing you did and he said, well, the first thing Mulligan asked me to do is find a house to shoot the exteriors. And I thought, assistant directors don't do that. <laughs> that's like a location <laughs> scout. That's like, that is a form of producing. So I just put that together and said, I think that's how he got it. He just probably had a big burden organizing everything in Murphy. So, yeah. And so I think it's because of Don, Don Kranz had said he had seen the Edward G. Robinson Red House film a long time ago. And which was not the only film shot in Murphy's at the beginning of the century. There were some others. and Yeah, so it was wonderful to have that as a starting point. Be like, that's pre-production. That's how they decided Northern California. I don't think that made Tom Tryon happy. Tom Tryon would have loved New England. but Exactly. You know, yeah. <laughs> well, it's a good I think, stand-in. I think it really works for – if you don't know – uh, the trained eye, unless you have the trained eye, uh, you really can't tell. It really, uh, they really do a good job uh, masking the fact that it wasn't New England. And uh, for years, I thought that it was New England. <laughs> I thought it was, uh, uh, and then uh, I, after doing some research, I figured out that it wasn't. Uh, but I'm assuming the production went smoothly as far as you know. I mean, there's things that yeah. we don't know. but uh, I, I think, that, you know, Albert Brenner said to me, I didn't. I have yet to meet Albert in person because he's also in his 90s. Mm-hmm. He has some issues. Don Kranz has since passed on. Um, his wife told me that over the phone. I didn't even know it. So I mm-hmm. quickly went on IMDb and I updated Don's death information. I would love to still meet Albert. Um, but Albert briefly told me over email that the casting crew was like family. Everybody ate together. I think it – but, you know, C. Robert Holloway, who was Tom Tryon's friend, told me that he heard that Morgan and Tryon didn't really get along mm-hmm. and – Having seen that 1977 interview, you know, Tryon's going off about Morgan without saying his name. I can't imagine it ended quite well. I don't know. I mean, Sandy in her letter to me said that she thought the script was also really good. And so, you know, I mean, people probably don't want to talk too much smack about it. I mean, Jim Riggs, who was a casting associate, he, he is a rental agent in Murphy's and was hired as the casting guy and the pilot to fly the dailies. And he told me that Occasionally, Tom Tryon would be critical of what was going on, and mm. but but he, you know, Tryon got along with the cast, and he didn't like Lou Frizzell as Uncle George. I mean, his attitude is, "What does a Southerner do in playing a New England uncle?" But you know, that's Morgan. Morgan cast his favorite actors over and over. Lou Frizzell is in the stalk. He's the stalking moon, the train master, and of course, he's the drugstore guy in Summer Forty Two. So why not put Lou yeah. Frizzell? Yeah, it's great. <laughs> yeah, and he's in Nickel Ride too later on. That's right, he's so, in the Nickel Ride. Yeah, yeah so, and so is Victor French. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, he he did have a habit of uh, recant of uh, using the same actors over and over again. I yeah, Lou Frizzell is a is a whole other uh, subject for me. I've been fascinated by that guy for years as well. Uh, actually, located his second cousin and had some interactions with him, who filled me in the blanks a little bit about wow. his. Uh, uh, he's a uh, he's a doctor, his uh, second cousin. But he, um, in case you ever uh, need to, I am to, interested. Yeah, okay, I, I'll, I I'll get you in I, contact. Okay, yeah, I didn't know where to find Louis' family. His IMDb says all these things about grand nieces right. and all this, and I just didn't know how to get a hold of any of it. It's, it's hard sometimes. So uh, yeah, I would I'd be interested if they had anything to say about the other and or Morgan. Just anything. sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, this uh, this 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 guy that I reached out to, he gave me the basics, and he said if I had any more questions, he gave me a phone number. So uh, there's a uh, there's a way to contact him. So we'll we'll uh, we'll exchange that. But yeah, he's he's a curio because uh, he he was in so many things in the seventies. He's in uh, Spielberg's first film, uh, Duel. That's right, and Spielberg, Spielberg uh, directed him also in an episode of Owen Marshall, Attorney at yes. Law. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That is correct, and he's he turns up in so many things. Even uh, and, and he goes from theatrical films to these television series and the the Adventures of ISIS. <laughs> the, the Never Saturday seen that. Morning, yeah, the Saturday yeah. morning TV. Well, it, it was uh, if you were of a certain age, which I was, uh, that was a Saturday morning staple. And he turned up in that. He was in these TV movies like The Devil Dog, The Hound of Hell, and he's in Capricorn One, and uh, just uh, tons of stuff. I mean, he's he's all over the place, and uh, you know, and then suddenly I knew. And I, I noticed I wasn't seeing him anymore, and uh, years later I did some research and said, "Well, he died. Okay, well that yeah. explains why I didn't, why he was in everything and then suddenly not there." So yeah, he's always uh, been a mystery to me, and I've been interested in his. Uh, um, and that's he was good a, that he has cousin that can tell you things. That's always great. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, but anyway, I, I'm getting off topic. Um, so the production went fairly well, and I guess they assembled the film probably. I'm saying I'm thinking in the winter months of '72. That's that's a good question. I, I should probably ask Nicholas Brown when that all took place. I, I assume the first half of 1972 yeah. was that was just editing over and over and stuff. And it was good to get a hold of Nick again because I he and I hadn't been in touch for a while. And when I did my video on the Nickel Ride, I was sort of basing off vague memories stuff Nick had told me about. Which, which I couldn't – we didn't talk about Nickel Ride that much back then, but he called me up just recently and refreshed my memory and told me a lot of stuff about the other I didn't know. Like Nick is – Nick knew Tom Tryon. He said he was just bitter, just, you know, I mean – and uh, that I think one of Tom Tryon's lovers <laughs> came to the set and said, you know, that clock, that grandfather clock, that's Tom's clock. <laughs> and then he's <laughs> like, what? And Nick is like, is this based on Tom Tryon's personal life story? Right. Like, what is it? Yeah, I, I've been unable to find out what inspired the violence in the story. Like, I I read an interview with Tom Tryon's younger brother, Bill, who said something about how Niles and Holland are based on Tom and their older brother, A. Lane Tryon. So I mm-hmm. thought that was brilliant. And their cousin was based is what inspired Russell Perry. But not sure what inspired the severed finger or the baby or the pitchfork, you know, and, and I found one interview with Tryon where he said, Oh, all you have to do is read your morning newspaper and all the, t-. and there was another interview where he gave what I thought was kind of a pretentious answer where he said, well, the Manson thing had a lot to do with it. I, I was in the house over where that happened. And I thought the Manson murders have nothing in common with the murders. And the so I don't know if that, I don't know. I don't know. It sounded odd to me. Like, I feel like there was another, so I'm not, and, and there was an interview with Mulgan where a French interviewer asked him, is this based on a true story? Mulgan said, well, there are children in Connecticut back then who committed such crimes. I'm like, what is, wow. what is Mulgan talking about? What is Tryon talking about? Like, so it's frustrating when you can't get quite to the source. Of right. Yeah. It almost, but it's like, well, they were a little cryptic about it. So, yeah, stuff like that is like, well, you can sort of piece the puzzles together, but there are missing pieces. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, and like I said, it's it's the passage of time and these um, the loss of these key figures. That's the sad part. I, I wish yeah. that I didn't have the the ability to contact these people back when they were around. And now with the internet, it's such it's such a makes it so much easier. And uh, people just don't realize how tough it was uh, years ago. Um, to to reach out to these people, and that's that's one of the blessings we have with the internet. But um, but anyway, uh, moving along, and now we'll talk about the um, the reception of the film uh, released in May of 1972. Uh, and you were talking about the Jerry Goldsmith score. I'm assuming he probably put dashed that off pretty quickly because I know he did the score for for Chinatown within a matter of days because the original score for Chinatown was. Uh, they did. They had a score, and they didn't like yeah, it. Yeah, by Phil, Philip Lambo, I think was Polanski's friend's name. Yeah, right. did the chi- I, I didn't know that Chinatown's music was done in '72. That is. Well, that, I mean, that, I mean, it was. Uh, I, I was just. I. I probably uh, said that wrong. Uh, what okay, I, yeah. I was trying yeah, to China, give the impression that he was just a quick composer, is what I was meaning. Yeah, I, I, I think to. maybe. Yeah, but I think '71, '72 was maybe a dark time for him because uh-huh. he was drinking. 
lot and he wanted to win an Oscar for Patton. And then when he did ends, he got kind of pissed about that and mm. went to London and did some carrying around and his divorce, he, his marriage ended. And then he met Carol Goldsmith and married her and dumped some other Danish chick. Oh, wow. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, I don't really know for a fact what went on between him on the other, but what I, one thing that I thought was thrilling is I, because I was trying to figure out who made the decision to cut up Goldsmith's music. Was that a Fox executive? Was that Tom Tryon? Who, because Diana Moldar said to me, she felt, when she was disappointed the movie became a horror film and she said she didn't know if that was the studio's fault. Morgan's thought or fault, but what thrilled me was, I asked Nick Nicholas Brown, did Robert Morgan have final cut on the other? And he said, yeah. <laughs> I thought that was awesome. Yeah, like, that's great. Yeah, and I'm, I guess he had final cut. Yeah, Nick Brown said, yeah, he had final cut on everything. Studios couldn't tell him what to do. And I thought, that's great. Like, So he couldn't blame any of the studios for butchering his vision. Mm-hmm. He, they were, Even though he was not an auteur, the studios pretty much left him alone. Probably heard him on the nickel ride, though, because the nickel ride was dumped by Fox. Yeah. I mean, that sad what happened nickel ride's a great movie it's maybe a little flawed i don't know that it's quite as like i think summer of 42 is morgan's most perfect film real quick adam what is what what are your top five morgan films oh wow that's that's a good question uh i think the summer of 42 is probably my favorite i think the other probably my second i know this is sacrilege but to kill a mockingbird is probably number three on that list <laughs> not number yeah. one I, it's a great film but those other two just to me um oh geez uh goodness gracious it's a lot, it's a lot I, to choose from yeah, yeah i think pursuit of happiness is very unrated with um michael sarazen from 71 also it's amazing he he uh, churned out both of those films in the same calendar year. So I, that would probably go uh, number four for me, A Pursuit of Happiness. And, uh, gee, number five, that's a, that's a tough one there. Uh, probably Man in the Moon, because I'm a big yeah, fan Man of Man in the Moon is, is a great one. Uh, it was a good way for yeah. him to go out um, to Absolutely. retire from filmmaking. So, yeah, those are probably my, my top five. Yeah, I like Pursuit of Happiness, but um, have you read the book by Thomas Rogers? I have not. The book by Tom, I, I, you know, when I was in film school and I was like, uh, obviously the only kid my age that knew who Robert Morgan was. I was trying to track down every movie he did. And I thought, well, with this other film he did in 1971, maybe I should, because I, I am, I am a director myself. I like to figure out how directors adapt mm-hmm. material. So I checked out the, the book by Thomas Rogers and read it first. And the book of Pursuit of Happiness is really kind of, a very kind of melancholy sort of sad epic about how William is that William Popper like he and his girlfriend are not hippies but they're not right wingers either and that's really what the whole book is about and then mm-hmm. this and then when he runs over the lady it just makes life worse it makes him hate America it's a very kind of anti American book and I contacted Thomas Rogers's daughter once and she told me yeah her dad wasn't really thrilled with the movie and my feeling is I like the movie, but the, I think for the movie, Mulgan played it more for laughs, I think, with that Randy Newman score. And, you yeah, know, that's let true. me go, let me go. And I'm like, hmm. yeah. Well, it's, I like it. I'm not, I feel like there could have been a, I don't know if Mulgan's right for it. Maybe Mike Nichols. I, but I like, I like the film. I know Ken Jones is a big fan of uh, Pursuit of Happiness. I'd say my top four by Mulgan is my first two are the same as yours. Summer 42, number one, because that movie requires no offense whatsoever. The other is second. Uh, I can see why people criticize the other, but I just am passionate about the other. And then you're not going to believe this. Three for me, Stalking Moon. Oh, that's like, an interesting choice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Probably I mean, been number six for me. So. Yeah. I, I remember – I mean the Stalking Moon, the first half of it is a little slow. I'll, I'll, it's not a perfect film, but that second half is so – intense and stuff like i'm still trying to track down people that worked on stalking moon i did get a hold of nolan clay who played the little apache boy and talked briefly with robert forrester but he died before we could have a conversation about it and i did manage to talk to alvin Sargent a few days before his death uh it was quite sad when i heard he died because he really makes stalking moon work oh i mean i think I think they tried to get Horton, and cause the book by Theodore B. Olson is very, very talky, and uh, Salvahist has lines of dialogue, and I, I assume Horton Foote's first draft of the script was like that, and they threw it out. <laughs> so they said, Alvin Sargent, just come in, just don't, just write a silent movie. And mm-hmm. So I think for me, Stalking Moon is three, probably To Kill a Mockingbird at four, 
Devil Mockingbird is a wonderful film. It's obviously like it's great. It's one of the best movies ever. I do have some criticisms about the way they adapted Harper Lee's book. Like you know how in the book they shoot Tom Robinson seventeen times, and in the movie he's shot by accidents and it's ambiguous right. a little bit. Yeah. As I've gotten older, I'm thought I'm like I don't know if that's aged very well. I love the movie, of course, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't not like To Kill a Mockingbird. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, and then five for me. Probably the nickel ride, just because it's so bizarre, and it was wonderful to hear Eric Roth stories. And then sit, if I had to do a six, Man in the Moon. Those are like like masterpieces. That's how you know, like Morgan was not just a flash in the pan. Kind. Of, I loved your podcast interview with Herman Rauscher, by the way. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, because it's interesting to think about who was the director of the Ode to Billy Joe, Max Baer. Yeah, Max Baer Jr. from uh, yeah. Beverly Hillbillies. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to think about a guy like Max Baer, who's probably just a rich guy that wanted to make a movie and <laughs> was probably just out of, out of his mind. And then a master like Morg and so in command of his craft. And that's why he made so many good films and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I can't remember what, what got me on that tangent. About, what are your top five? <laughs> that's good. I go yeah. yeah, I mean, for me, his worst decade, Morgan's worst decade was probably the 80s. I don't particularly like Kiss Me Goodbye that much. I don't think Screwball Comedy was for him. No. And I, I have mixed feelings about Clara's Heart. Yeah. Uh, what do you think? What do you think of Clara's Heart? Well, I think it's unjustly maligned by most of the critics. I mean, they just uh, you you th- you would have thought that he committed a federal crime by making that film the way that uh, the critics savaged it. Uh, recently released on Blu-ray, which is interesting. Warner Archive has released two of his films this year, Stalking Moon, Back in the Winter, and just yeah. recently they put out Clara's Heart. And uh, I had never seen it. I'd, I kind of was uh, afraid to watch it because of the uh, the terrible critical reception, but uh, I, I got a review copy of it that Warner Archive was gracious enough to send me, and um, I didn't think it was bad at all, actually. I, I thought, you know, it, is, is it a masterpiece? Is it is it a great film? No. But not the uh, the the atrocity, the cinematic atrocity that yeah. you would be led to believe. So yeah. uh, you know. Yeah, I mean, I I have mixed. It's not a terrible film no. at all. And actually, I got a hold of Mulgan's agent, Robert L. Stein. He told me astonishing stories about Mulgan, like how they wanted Mike Nichols. Speaking of him again, they wanted Mike Nichols to direct Claire's Heart, and Mulgan was like cussing out his agent. And I, but I I think maybe I should save that for another video because it's not really relevant to the other. Maybe if I do a video on the man in the moon, I can tell the Claire's heart story. That would be interesting. But it was, yeah, because I, I I haven't mentioned this yet. I, the way I want to make this video interesting, the other is a film about how we are two-sided. There's the Nile side, mm-hmm. there's the Holland side, sure. and Niles blames Holland. People only see Niles. They don't see Holland. And my big thesis for this video essay is Tom Tryon and Robert Mulgan were both Niles, and they were both Holland. They are the two principal creators of the film, the writer and the director. And the video essay is going to begin by talking about both of their upbringings. Tryon was a country boy, grew up in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Mulgan, tough Bronx kid, you know, New York City, grew up in a crowded family in the fishing village. They and you know, they both loved reading books when they were little boys. But I think Mulgan was a lot tougher and. Both, you know, served in World War II, but Mulgan was a Marine. Tryon was just in the basic Navy. And, and it's interesting how their, their careers sagged. And they both had personal issues. Tryon was a cause of the homosexual, and his wife committed suicide. And uh, all this stuff was going on. With Mulgan, I have to be a little careful about what I talk about because um, I am going to talk about how he did have a drinking problem. Tryon also had a drinking problem. But I think for Mulgan, might have been a little worse because – Ron Morgan's attitude was don't drink during the day when you're working on a film set, but at after 6 p.m., once you're watching the dailies, the bar is open. And <laughs> once and once Morgan drank gin or drank scotch, he became a different person, mm. like sort of a mean, you know. But but when we worked with actors on the set, wonderful guy, and that's why people probably thought he was like Atticus Finch sure. at times. And but uh, the producer Bill Borden, who worked on The Man in the Moon, told me a crazy story. He had heard a rumor that in the 60s. When Mulgan and Alan J. Pacula, you know, were working at Warner Brothers a lot. I don't know what movie it was. Bill, Bill Borden didn't know either, but I guess Mulgan had spent, had used up too much film directing himself out of difficult scenes. So he got called to a meeting with Jack Warner. Jack Warner yelled at Mulgan, just, just 
until Mulligan exploded. And the story is he picked up a chair, threw it at Jack Warren, and the chair went out the window and crashed on the street. Wow. <laughs> and so Bill Borden, Bill Borden said, Bob, is this story true? And, and Mulligan said, well, I did throw a chair at him, but it didn't go out the window. <laughs> but, yeah, but hearing stories about that just got me to thinking. I just think The Other was a film that he and Tom Tryon had to make for just personal reasons that we may never quite know for sure. But, uh, I, yeah, I just think it, even if it's not today considered a major film by most people, I think that's why it's in need of rediscovery because it wasn't just a flash in the pan or a movie. It's a movie that a lot of talented people worked on. Really, they cared about it. They wanted it to be good. And I think the result was a great film. Not everybody would agree, but... It's sort of, I, I just feel like a, a bigger discussion on Tryon and Morgan might get people's attention with regards to why people need to hear about why it was I agree. I totally agree. And yeah. I, I think it's sad that when the film came out, uh, considering how much the book sold, I mean, we're talking about a, a book that was a major, major deal at the time. It sold millions and millions of copies. Uh, it was just selling like gangbusters. And then this film comes out, and nobody goes to see it, which is pretty amazing yeah. when you think about it, that this book, you would think there would be such a, a large anticipation for a film version of this book. And then when the film comes out, it's basically neglected, only to find its second life. I uh, I have some of the actual ads from – Oh, wow. You have the ads? Yeah, cool. I, do, I do. I have one from uh, when it ran at the Westwood um, Theater um, – Gosh, I'm trying to think of it. Uh, the the theater on Westwood in Los Angeles that's no longer there. Um, it's it was considered to be one of the premier uh, theaters in Los Angeles. And I can't I, anyway. I've got that ad. I could send it along to you, but it's pretty amazing because they're warning people. You know, once nobody's admitted after a certain amount of time into the film and this, that, and the other. And and my mind oh, just good. imagines in May of 1972 what the what it would have been like to be in that theater seeing it on that in, in that incredible. Um, presentation that they had that that that, that movie house was uh, known for. So yeah. you know, and then nobody went, and then it was yeah. sold to CBS, as we said in April of '75. And we will talk very briefly uh, about the ending of the television version, which is a little bit different from the theatrical version. I think it's worth mentioning. Um, and Nicholas Brown uh, actually confirmed to me he did cut together that alternate ending with the voiceover that I've I've never seen it. But, and actually, Nick said, isn't that how the movie ends with you hear Niles going, Holland, we can't play the game anymore. And I said, no, the version that's on DVD and Blu-ray uh, has the silent Silence. ending. The aunt says, Niles, time for lunch and just the whistling. Perfect ending, in my opinion. Yeah, but I would like to. Yeah, yeah, I'd like I'd like to see this other ending, even though it sounds superfluous, uh, but it's a very because Nick hasn't seen the movie in forever. And another thing I asked Nick about, you know how on the CBS Fox tape and on the DVD and Blu-ray, there is no 20th Century Fox logo at the beginning. I wondered about that. I'm glad yeah, you Yeah, it just up. says 20th Century Fox Presents. And so I asked Nicholas, why do you think that is? And Nick said, well, I think the reason – he said the reason they started doing that is Fox didn't like it when people played music over the Fox logo. Mm -hmm. So they started getting rid of the Fox logo completely. And I said, well, that's odd because when you guys did the nickel ride, you hear Dave Grusin's score over that Fox logo right. on the nickel ride. And I, I want to see the 20th Century Fox logo appear before the other. I don't know. I just feel like that would make it more early 70s-ish. Like, want to hear that old fanfare. I, I just, I don't know. I'm a stickler for that sort of thing. And so... When it begins with just the credits, I get so frustrated. I, that's one of the reasons why I finally bought the VH, the CBS Fox tape. Part of partially just to own it, just to have it, not right. really to watch it. But then I started playing it. I'm like, oh, you know, you know CBS Fox version. There's no Fox logo. Mm -hmm. so, there is the CBS Fox logo, of course. Right. That's awesome. But you know, whatever. Well, I, uh, as we've spoken privately about this, I had a 35 millimeter print of the film at one point, which. Uh, it was already in the uh, ravages of the uh, vinegar syndrome, which is a condition known to affect certain uh, types of film that were processed at a certain point in time, uh, and it would turn the film pink, and then eventually it would deteriorate. It had a, a really 
a strong vinegar yeah. smell, which is the reason it's called vinegar syndrome. And anyway, I acquired this print from a, a guy in the mid-90s for about $50. And uh, so I put it together. I was a projectionist at the time, part-time, and I put it together and ran it, uh, screened it in our, in our theater after we closed. And that's the only time I've seen it on a, a big screen. And I cannot recall whether it had the Fox logo. That's funny you mentioned that. I do not recall. And uh, yeah. that unfortunately, my print eventually just dissolved. It kind of just molded together, and I had to tr- trash it, which broke my heart. Uh, and mm-hmm. I may have – maybe I wasn't as careful as I should have been. I probably should have made sure it was in an ultra-cool place, and I think maybe the heat got to it a little bit where I was storing it at the time. And so, uh, But, yeah, I wish I had that print because then we could for sure – know whether those prints went out with the Fox logo or not. So it's, it's a very interesting point to bring up. Uh, I would be curious. But but yeah, uh, so it didn't do very well, and, and then eventually, like I said, came to television, and uh, it's and over the years it has gradually <laughs> built its reputation, and thankfully people are uh, catching on to it. And I'm, I've tried to be uh, – I've proselytized – so much over the years about this film and tried to urge people, basically grabbing people by the lapels and saying, you must see this film. If you're a horror film fan, you must see it. And yeah. I've, I've made, I've, I've bought so many copies and given them out to people and uh, made sure that the, you know, I have two posters of it in my home, not just one. I have the original French version uh-huh. and I have the, uh, which has the missing finger on it. And then I have the, uh, the, uh, the original uh, United States uh, one sheet as well, the yellow one, the standard one. So I, I have both of those. So anyway, I, like I said, huge fan. And uh, I actually have a uh, – <laughs> this is really crazy. I have a, a face mask with the, uh, the <laughs> that I had made for me <laughs> during uh, the COVID times that says don't reveal the secret of the other. So I'm really <laughs> – Oh, it's great. <laughs> That's that's my kind of face mask. Yeah, I would buy that. Part. It's it's really great. Yeah, I figured if nothing else, it will uh it will get people's curiosity and they'll they'll say, well, what's they'll the be secret like, of what the is other? That? Yeah. yeah, the secret of what? What, what do you mean? The Nicole Kidman movie? Yeah, I'm like, exactly. No, not yeah. Exactly. So uh, I ha- yeah. I have that. I'll have to take a picture and post it to social media. So absolutely, uh, absolutely. I'll share it if you do yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I'm a huge fan, and uh, it's just very interesting. We're really looking forward to seeing your video essay. Uh, this is going to be great, and uh, uh, we will definitely let our listeners know when that's available. And um, I just uh, I think it's great that that you've done all this work, and I just want to thank you for taking some time to talk a little bit about the other and what you've gleaned in your research and um one more thing before we do uh sign off i I did forget about this now you toured the actual house where i did yes uh the house is now owned by judith marvin who is a historian living in murphy's and i contacted the townspeople in murphy's and they put me in touch with her and Mm -hmm. uh my mother and i went up there last christmas and judith graciously showed us the house and the movie was not filmed inside the house the interiors are, are not remarkable for this project but yeah, it was great to actually see. You know, the house is red now. It was painted white for the movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, Albert Brenner had built a staircase in the yard for the scene where Diana falls down the stairs. Okay. And that staircase is not there anymore. And I think the barn was built just for the movie. But And I think, uh, according to Albert and according to Nicholas Brown, somebody even wanted to buy that barn after filming was completed. And Albert was like, well, it's not built to go. <laughs> because, I mean, just, you're not be able to do anything with it, so I don't know what happened to the barn, but it's definitely not there. And but I remember going in the yard, and there's like a bird statue in the, in the yard now. And I said to Judith, "Is that where the well used to be?" And she's like, "Maybe." <laughs> Judith, I think when she was a uh, you know a younger woman when she watched the making of the film, she didn't own the house back then. Mm-hmm. But she told she gave me a history lesson on how it was built in the 1890s by a descendant of John Adams. So I thought, oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Might as well tell that too. Sure. Um, people might like to know a little bit about that. And so, yeah, it was great to see the house and stuff. And I think uh, Jenny Sullivan, who plays Tori in the film, she was married to Randy Messina from Loggins. Oh, yeah. And yeah. She, she told me how one of their albums sitting in was uh, taken at one of those hotels. And so the other uh, enlightened a lot of people to that Murphy's location. Diana told me she has a summer home up near there now because she worked on it. So, yeah, it was good to actually be in Murphy's, even though at the time I didn't really know much about making the movie itself. So being in Murphy's 
gave me some some sections, some some of the puzzle, but at the time I was still unsatisfied. Like mm-hmm. oh, I don't know anything about these here, but now I think I know about ninety percent of what I need. Excellent. Which is good. It's good enough for a video essay. It's good. Enough. Oh yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. And, and the interiors, I guess, were. Uh, and that's a question that I never thought to ask. I guess was that a soundstage or? Do you know? I think they. I think the interiors were shot in Angels Camp somewhere in some other house. Okay. I know for sure. I know for sure the fairground sequences were shot in Angels Camp. But when my mother and I went over there, it looked. I don't know. The area didn't. Maybe we look. Maybe the place where the actual fair was was sealed off. But Angels Camp. Seemed like it was just a bunch of like hilly roads, and I don't know. Like I, I could not imagine the fairground sequence when we went over there and stuff. But Angels Camp is also where Mark Twain wrote his Jumping Frog story, and so mm-hmm. we really liked being up there, even if nobody there really remembered anything about the making of the other. But of course, Jim Riggs lives there, and once I found out about him, I called him up. I've talked with almost everybody. I think there's a, I think the script supervisor is Ray Kidrose. I don't know if he's still alive. I haven't been able to find him, but Nick said I think he did work for me his notes. So I talked with just about everybody. <laughs> That's great. That's great. That's yeah. it. Really is. Well, listen, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you go, but uh, thanks for joining us and uh, talking about the other. I think there's no no better time than Halloween, and um, yeah. since we're all quarantined, uh, for those of you who have not seen the other, well, here's a, a good excuse to see it. Uh, if you can't find it streaming, then do yourself a favor and pick up a copy, uh, however you can find it, and I would highly recommend it. It's a real treat. Thank you.